Our text for this evening is going to be from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. You can turn there if you like. It's page 815 in the Pew Bible. Um, Our text tonight comes from the end of one of the larger uh, discourses that Jesus has in this gospel. So Matthew organizes uh, a lot of Jesus' teaching into five particular talks. The first one uh, is maybe the one we're most familiar with. We have the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have this one here in chapter 10, which focuses on uh, the mission as Jesus is sending the apostles out. Our passage that we'll be looking at tonight comes from the very end, the last three verses of that talk. This is a helpful discourse as a whole. Uh, Jesus is talking to his apostles uh, about their mission going out, doing some of their work apart from him. And so in one level, it is telling us of a historic event that happened as he's sending the apostles. On another level, it's also helpful instruction for his later church, both as we go out in mission um, to present Christ and also as we receive God's people um, on both ends of that. So. That's what we're going to be thinking about a little bit tonight with this passage. And just again, to round out that context, um, because he's talking to the apostles in that first verse, he's going to use the word you. He's talking about them. That's that's the apostle specifically he has in mind and not necessarily uh, the reader. So with that said, let's read Matthew 10 verses 40 through 42. Please listen carefully for this is God's word. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word for your glory and for our good as we consider it tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is a fairly common accusation to hear in a whole variety of settings that the church, um, both today and in the past, has done a bad job of caring for the weak, a bad job of caring for the powerless, for those who aren't able to stand up for themselves. Now, to be sure, there's some ways, often a lot of ways, in which these arguments are unfair, that they're selective, in which they overlook a whole uh, host of other evidence um, and overlook the fact that, on the whole, the church has been very beneficial for the weak, for the poor in society. And yet, often when we hear the examples, they're valid. They're real examples. There's something to them. We can't just brush them off. Uh, Just over a week ago, I got to lead a team of youth to help with the ministry of Sacred Road among the Yakima Indians. And there we heard of not only how the U.S. government had treated Native Americans in our country's early history, but also how many years ago churches also worked with the government in a program to forcibly remove Native American children from their parents in order to raise them in a compulsory boarding school that sought to socialize them into Western culture. And as a parent, just imagining uh, children being forcibly taken from the home and the church partnering with that was something hard to deal with. Of course, in other areas of the history of the American church, there's the reality of how many churches accepted and even defended the practice of race-based slavery, consenting to a whole social and economic system that was built and depended on the oppression of the weak. Now, of course, we can look at other Christians who opposed slavery and who fought against it, and we do need to remember them. But they don't cancel out the many American Christians, pastors and even theologians, who accepted or even defended the practice. And then you have the church today. 
Just this week, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Seattle agreed to a $12 million settlement with 30 individuals who say that they were abused by teachers at a school that was run by the church. And that when the church leadership learned of it, they did nothing significant to protect the boys or to protect future victims. Similar settlements, of course, have been made across the country for similar scandals. And before anyone, before any of us are urged to label this a, a merely a Roman Catholic problem, similar lawsuits have now been brought against Protestant ministries as well. Now, I don't pretend to know the truth behind any of these individual claims, and a lot of them are in the early stages. There's still work being done to figure out exactly what happened. But in enough churches and enough ministries, a pattern emerges where children are abused, and in order to protect a church body or in order to protect a Christian institution or in order to protect the Christian mission, child abuse is swept under the rug. And the pattern is that these little ones are not that important, or at least not as important as the mission, quote-unquote, of the church or the cultural impact of the institution. And all these examples with Native Americans, with American slavery, with toleration of child abuse, we see how churches, how Christians have downplayed the value of the weak around them in certain situations. And while hopefully it's not surrounding the same issues or at all to the same degree, I think each of us struggle with and do the same thing, follow the same pattern in one way or another. We all have certain people, maybe that person, maybe a group of people, people who are of little consequence in our own eyes, in whom we ignore or who we avoid or in some way fail to love because we see them that way, because we have things that are, quote, unquote, more important to do than to concern ourselves with people like that. So I want to challenge all of us tonight to think about who are those people for us? For the kids or for the youth here, it might be that kid in your grade or that kid in your school who's unpopular, who's kind of awkward, the one who's left standing on his own when your group circles up to talk. Who is that person specifically in your, in your group of friends, in your circle? For college students and young adults, it may be similar. It might be the loner that you see at church or at work or in your classrooms, the one who doesn't really connect very easily with others, who maybe you think about approaching from time to time, but you haven't done it. And for the adults here, it could be that individual or that couple who is often overlooked, maybe an unimportant person at work, maybe a seemingly uninteresting or even difficult to be, to be with person at church. The person who's not really connected to community, but who's outside our particular circle of friends, outside of our comfort zone. While the scale and the degree are very different from the examples I mentioned earlier and the situations that we face daily, we still follow a similar pattern. We look at these people and we decide that they are small, that they're of little consequence, that they're not really worth reaching out to or receiving. This is one of the points that I think Jesus is making, one of the things he's targeting in our text tonight, that we tend to relate to others, we tend to evaluate them and to respond to them based on sight, by how much consequence they appear to have in the world with our eyes. When we read the text at first, the progression is kind of strange. Jesus starts by talking about apostles. And this sort of makes sense, you know, because he's talking to the apostles, he's sending them out for their mission work, and at first it makes sense to us as well, because we think, well, of course we would receive an apostle. And then he goes on to prophets and to righteous people, and we still see where he's going with, or at least we think. These two are people of consequence in the kingdom of God. They're godly people, and godly people would, would recognize them, would welcome them, and would receive them well. But then the text seems to reach its climax, its peak on what? On giving, quote, one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. And we 
might be a little bit confused on where this text is going, on what uh, it's building towards. Uh, for me, it felt a little bit like the old Sesame Street game, that which of these things is not like the other. I don't know if you guys know that. Which Maybe you need a three-year-old for that to be the first thing to come to mind. But it made me think of that. One of these things doesn't seem to fit. I get the first three, but the fourth one doesn't seem right. We go from these lofty offices of apostles and prophets and righteous ones to little ones. I think Jesus intends to throw us off a bit here. He intends to throw us a bit of a curveball. He intends for us to stop for a minute and have to rethink the list that we've heard so far. And to understand it better, we might need to look at the list backwards, from back to front. The key is less about considering a venerated apostle into our home and more about receiving and caring for a little one. Now, it's helpful to note that while the phrase little ones here seems to mean uh, to include children, many have interpreted it more broadly than that, to include those who are uh, physically small, but also small in the eyes of the world, small uh, in terms of the power that they possess. So those who lack power or prestige or social standing, and that certainly includes children, but it may also include adults who in the world's eyes are of little consequence. When we start there, when we start with receiving such people, then we realize that in real life, We're reminded, really, that in real life, in the history of God's people, apostles, prophets, and righteous people almost never appeared venerated in their lifetimes. They appeared to be little ones in their time. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox iconography of the apostles. Some of them will picture them wearing some sort of garment and carrying some sort of symbols that show their authority and show their office. And I can see some value to that, to reflecting on those spiritual realities. But I think that's often how we picture the apostles and the prophets. I know at least that's how I often imagine them. We think of having the apostle Paul over in the same category as having a powerful politician over or a famous actor or maybe our favorite celebrity pastor over for dinner. It's an obvious honor. We'd like to take pictures of them sitting at the table with us and them playing with our kids and post it on Facebook and let everyone see it, you know? Like we might have a caption, here's Olive having a tea party with Tim Keller. Or, you know, in this case, here's Olive playing with blocks with the Apostle Peter. It would be something we'd want to kind of show off about. But the reality is that's not what the apostles or prophets were like in their lifetime. Think of Peter, for example. He was a relatively uneducated ex-fisherman who spent three years wandering around with a would-be Messiah and then claimed to speak on behalf of God. Or we could think about the Apostle Matthew, a man who was known to collude with Israel's oppressors for his own financial gain and who then claimed to be an authority on spiritual matters for Israel. The Apostles as a whole did not look like venerated, weighty spiritual leaders in their day. There's a sense in which those traditional Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox icons of the apostles do show their spiritual status. But a first century Christian had to believe that by faith, not by sight. It didn't look that way at all. There's a reason why in 1 Corinthians 4, the apostle Paul said that the apostles were the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. That's really what they looked like when people looked at them by sight. And the prophets were as bad, maybe even worse. Um, N.D. Wilson had a a good article recently in Christianity Today titled Called to be Uncool Christians, where he's talking about the idea of cool and what we're called to be uh, in our faith as opposed to that. And at one point, he starts to summarize how the prophets were seen in their day. He writes, John the Baptist wore camel hair and ate insects. Isaiah had to walk around naked for years. Ezekiel had to cook his food over dung. Elijah ate only food carried by ravens, nasty carrion birds. The first thing God told Hosea to do was to marry a whore. 
In other words, what Wilson's getting at is that these were not the type of people that you wanted to have over for dinner and take lots of idyllic pictures and post them on Facebook so that all of your friends would see it. If you did that, your friends online would probably thought that you'd sort of lost it. The apostles, the prophets, the righteous people in their day, they are the little ones because they're those who by sight are inconsequential at best and are dangerous at worst. They're not the people who look weighty. They're not the people who boost our reputation when people associate with them. They're not people who are particularly comfortable to be around a lot of the time. When we view many of God's people by sight, they appear to be inconsequential, and we treat them accordingly. And this is one of the main problems that Jesus is dealing with here in this text. Jesus is a true realist when it comes to what his apostles, what his prophets, what his disciples look like by sight. He wants us to acknowledge that, too. He wants us to be honest about it. And then he wants us to try to view the same people by faith instead of by sight. And that's really the heart of what Jesus wants us to do in this text. Because what we see, what our eyes tell us, is deceptive. And so Jesus urges us here to evaluate and relate to others by faith and not by sight. We need to relate to people according to what Jesus says they are, not what our eyes or what the world says that they are. And Jesus tells us that he closely identifies with his people, especially those who appear to be the least, so that what we do to them, we do to him. In our text tonight from Matthew 10, we read that to receive an apostle is to receive Christ, and to receive Christ is to receive God the Father. Similar spiritual rewards accompany an act of kindness we make towards any of God's people, towards a prophet, a righteous person, even giving a cup of cold water to a little one who is a disciple and who seems to be of little worldly consequence. In Matthew 25, Jesus elaborates on this concept further. Here Christ distinguishes, he talks about the final judgment, he distinguishes his true followers from false ones by whether they fed him when he was hungry whether they gave him a drink when he was thirsty, whether they welcomed him when he was a stranger, whether they clothed him when he was naked and visited him when he was sick or in prison. And both sides of the judgment basically say the same thing. They say, wait a minute, we, when did we see you when you were in these conditions? When did we see you poor or naked or in prison? And Jesus' reply is simple. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Later on in the book of Acts, we read about Jesus confronting Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. And he asks him, why are you persecuting me? That's the question he brings to Saul. And to the best of our knowledge, Saul had not, at this point uh, up to here, encountered Jesus in person. He hadn't laid a hand on him. What he had done was he persecuted the church. But while it looked to Saul like he'd merely confronted a problematic group of confused or uneducated Jews, Christ tells him that in reality, he'd been persecuting the Son of God himself. When it comes to other people, our eyes are very deceptive. The world's evaluation is almost always wrong. A group of men who by sight are the scum of the earth, in reality, are the holy apostles of Christ. A woman who by sight is an unwed mother in a backwater town is in reality the chosen virgin mother of the eternal king. The young man who appears inconsequential at best and difficult to be around at worst may in reality be an heir to the eternal kingdom of God and may one day be set in charge of five cities at the resurrection. The little girl who seems uh, to just catch our attention as she makes too much noise during the church service may one day disciple many in the faith and usher scores into the kingdom of God. The reality is that while we're quick to evaluate others by sight and to treat them accordingly, We almost always have no idea what God is doing with someone and what he will do with them, either in this life or in the next. 
And if we keep in mind how God relates to these little ones who seem of little consequence to us, if we keep in mind how God delights to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong, if we evaluate others by faith, then we would treat them very differently. So let's consider this a little bit longer. Let's think about the reality, first in terms of what God does with people in this life, but then also what he does in terms of the life to come. So first, first this life. Uh, I mentioned just a few minutes ago how I got to lead that mission team of youth, uh, along with three other teams from three other churches, to Sacred Road Ministries in Yakima, uh, where Pastor Chris Granberry and his family have started and have been working at a pretty amazing ministry to Native Americans there. And it's a particularly an outreach to the children on the reservation. Uh, they've been serving that people for about 11 years. And when you hear about what the children's lives were like 11 years ago, and when you see what's there now, when you see how things are different, it's really quite striking. The Granberries have changed the lives of many, and they've brought new hope to a community there. One night when some of us were sitting together, uh, one of the team members from another church who had been there a few times, who knew Chris a bit better, pressed him to tell us uh, a little bit more about how he got to be where he was today, about uh, what the story of his life that led him to this kind of work. And one of the things Chris talked about was he uh, talked about his experience in high school. He explained how he grew up in a Christian home, but he went into a spiral after his mother died. He became depressed. He became self-destructive. And he really wanted to be dead. He didn't want to be around anymore. Uh, he says he never smiled. He didn't have any friends. And he told us how every night before bed he would pray and ask God to take his life while he was asleep, to just bring it to an end. And this is what his life looked like. This is what he imagined his life would always be like. And then one day in high school, a group of Christian kids invited Chris out for pizza. Now, Chris told us he was so unpopular at this point that he assumed that it was a joke and they were making fun of him. He says he almost got in a fight with one of the kids over it until he realized that they were serious. And when he realized that, he agreed. He says he didn't even say a word to them. He just nodded and then walked away. But he went out with them. He showed up. And when he showed up for pizza, he sat there and he watched them all together. He says he didn't speak once the whole time that he was with them. He didn't even smile while he was there. He just observed Nothing earth-shattering happened while he was there. No one tried to fix him or to solve all of his problems. They were just together. They included him. They told him that they wanted him to be there, and he was there. To this day, Chris says he's still not sure why they invited him. Uh, He said that he sort of suspects that earlier that week their youth pastor might have said something like, you know that kid who has no friends, the one who never smiles? Reach out to him this week. Invite him over for pizza or something like that. And they did. As Chris sat at the table and watched them, he said that he saw how they treated each other and how they treated each other well. He said he saw how they were happy. I mentioned a minute ago that Chris said that every night he would pray that God would take his life. But that night he prayed something different. That night he says he went home and he told God that if God wasn't going to kill him, and Chris admitted at this point it didn't seem likely since he'd been praying it for years and it hadn't happened yet, He said if he wasn't going to do that, then he prayed that he would give that God would give him whatever those kids had, that God would change him and make him like that. And Chris marks this moment, uh, this event and this prayer is the turning point in his life and his faith. Now we need to stop and think about that just for a minute. Somewhere out there right now are a few Christian men who once when they were teenagers invited a really unpopular and hard to be with kid to get pizza with them. And as far as they saw, that was it. That was the end of it. That was all that ever happened. But in reality today, there are hundreds of Native American children who have a hope, who have a different future, and who have knowledge of Christ all because of a process that began 
with those guys inviting one unpopular kid out for a piece of pizza. This is the kind of God that we serve. He's a God who loves to work, first of all, covertly. We rarely see the full effects of our actions. But even more than that, he's a God who loves to use small, seemingly insignificant actions to overturn the world. A cup of cold water affects eternal rewards. A slice of cheese pizza transforms a generation of Yakima Indians. A crucified ex-carpenter from Nazareth conquers sin, Satan, and death and transforms world history. This is what our God delights to do. But we rarely see it in this life. Those Christians who extended just a little bit of kindness to Chris will not really know its full effect until they stand before the throne of Christ and he tells them about it. And they can only imagine how amazed they'll be when they find out. But that, stories like that, um, as interesting as they are, as amazing as they are, of how God works in this life, are not really even the most significant thing here. That's not the most significant thing going on in our text or as we relate to other people. The really significant thing is how God uses our actions to the little ones around us in this life. Uh, Not in this life, I'm sorry, but how it affects the life to come. Uh, One of the best uh, resources on this to think about this is C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. Uh, If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. But in this essay, Lewis argues that most of the problems with how we treat others around us, um, including and maybe especially our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, um, is because uh, those, especially those who we call little ones, excuse me, is because we fail to recognize the basic Christian doctrine that every single person, every man, woman and child will exist for all eternity and that every human, whether will either be incredibly glorified for all of eternity or if they reject God, will turn grotesquely inward on themselves for all of eternity. Lewis puts it this way. I'm going to read a chunk from that essay that that gives us the idea. He says, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which... If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else there could be a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So again, think of the Granberries. It's amazing what God has done in this world with that offering of a slice of pizza. But think of the eternal consequences. Think about Chris Granberry. Think about his family and all those who have come to know Christ through his ministry and how they will be crowned with splendor and majesty at the resurrection and for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth because of a slice of pizza offered for the sake of Christ. Jesus is not exaggerating about the eternal consequences of a cup of cold water. We may not see it, but we have to trust that it is real by faith. So what does that mean for us? Well, again, for the children, for the youth here tonight, we need to ask ourselves, who are those kids that we know who we so often exclude? And maybe we're not bullying them, maybe we're not actively excluding them, but you see them off to the side, 
and you turn into your circle of friends instead of talking to them. In your social world, they seem inconsequential. But what might that person be in this life? What will they be in the life to come? How can you receive them rightly? How can you offer them a cup of cold water, a slice of cheese pizza? What will it look like to do that? And what would it look like to do it not out of guilt or not because someone else told you to do it, but because you choose to believe Jesus and what he says about the eternal consequences of such an action? Because you choose to believe his words that caring for one of the least of your brothers is to care for Christ himself. It's an amazing opportunity. We need to ask what we'll do with it. And what about for the adults here? What does it look like for us? Who are the little ones around us? Now, of course, there's a sense in which this includes our own children, and they're maybe the first ones we think of when we think of little ones. And that's certainly uh, some people who are called to care for regularly. But what about beyond that? What about the small people around us, the people who are often overlooked, who are assumed by many and maybe by ourselves as well to be of little consequence? Maybe the people who are harder to be with, who for whatever reason just seem to grate on us a bit when we try to reach out to them. Maybe they're just a little bit strange or a little bit boring or a little bit of both. How can we love them? How can we receive them as a brother or sister in Christ who bears the eternal weight of glory? How, what would it mean in terms of stepping out of our comfortable circles of safe friends? What would we have to give up in order to do it? And how can we take steps to reach up out to them, to invite them over, not just in the distant future, not just when things calm down, but right now? We might want to do, not want to do it right now in terms of after the service. I imagine if you invite anyone over after the service, they might have some ideas about what you think of them. But if not right now, then, then soon, uh, not, too, not too far from now, um, but to really do it. The serious thing that Jesus is telling us in this text is that right now in heaven, there are ordinary Christians from the early church who welcomed a former fisherman named Peter or a former tax collector named Matthew into their homes as they traveled from town to town. There's a widow who welcomed a very strange man named Elijah. And there are scores of Christians who offered even just the smallest tokens of kindness to those the world had written off. They had received they have received the reward for walking by faith and not by sight. They trusted in the God who rewards the simplest acts, who overturns nations with a slice of pizza, who enhances the population of the kingdom of God with a cup of cold water. Let us strive to join their number. Let us trust the word of Christ and not the sight of our eyes. Let us follow in the footprints of our Lord who gave himself over to death, death on a cross to save little ones like you and me. Let us imitate Christ, our older brother, and relate to others by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these things, we do pray that you would increase our faith and that you would help us to see through it. That you would help us to relate to each other, to relate to you, not by what we see, not how things appear in the world, but according to what you tell us they are. Help us, Lord, to love each other well based on that vision. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.